Welcome to Teacher Besties, a podcast for teachers. I'm Jamie. And I'm Kelly. On today's agenda, we will talk about what we have on our desks, the essentials that we need to have, teacher shortages in terms of hiring. There are not enough of us, I guess. Benefits of teaching brevity within writing. And a great episode of This American Life about busing and school integration. Hello, how are you? I'm good. I started school this week. Ooh, how is that? Well, it was a three-day week, which was excellent, but I'm really tired. Like, went to sleep at 9 o'clock on the couch last night, tired. Yeah, you get that sort of, like... I'm so depleted, I can't do anything after the first few days, right? Yeah. And then this morning, after waking up at 5.30, I went back to sleep for another, like, four hours. <laughs> do you like starting on a Wednesday? How do you feel about the three-day start? I like it. It's a nice transition. I think it's I think it's easier than doing a full week. I have a friend who teaches in another district. She has a half-day first day. Oh, that's nice. So it's shortened periods. Yeah. And I think that's a good idea, too. Yeah. I like I like the midweek start. It's definitely a way to ease in. Well, I'm from good. the East Coast, so we used to start after Labor Day, and then it was just a full week, no transition. So Of course it was. You guys are hardcore. Yes, we are. <laughs> uh, this one's definitely a nicer way to do it. We're wimps out here on the West Coast. We like to ease into everything. It's a little privilege. <laughs> I'm okay, okay with it now, though. Okay. So what were some positives from the week? Positives? Uh I really like my new class. I'm teaching an AP seminar. It's fantastic. Um, I was a little nervous about it, but I think it's going to be really good. Um, My freshmen seem nice and quiet so far. That's always good. Yeah, so no problems. In the beginning. And I got lots of visits from former students, which... It's always as good, yeah. like warm and fuzzies, right? Yeah. Makes you feel like they actually liked you when they make the effort to come across the hallway to say hello. Yeah, and it was really cute and just, I don't know, it's like you walk on campus and everyone knows your name and I know you're not going to experience that, but... I'm so going to miss that this year, but it's okay. It was definitely, even though I had to wake up really early and go in on the first day, the fact that other people were excited to see me made me smile. Yeah. Uh, I have yet to start school, but I am like kind of in the throes of setting up a new classroom, which is daunting, I would say. Um, It's exciting, but it's also... Um, you know, I've yet to move into a new classroom where it is not filled with all of the remnants of the former teacher's stuff that like was just like, I'm out, I'm abandoning all this stuff. And so what do you do? Do you just recycle everything? Do you actually look through and see maybe there's something I want? Yeah, actually I cull it for all the stuff that I'm like, can use this? I have like a pile that's like post-its, highlighters, all the junk I want. And then everything else is just like in the massive recycling and trash bin. What about content? Like... Well, it was a psycho- it was AP psych that oh. the person was teaching before me, so I can't really uh, recycle the content, but I try I'm trying to reach out to some teachers. I actually know someone who teaches AP psych, so I'm like, I have an entire like <laughs> file folder of stuff for you if you want it. Yeah, my first year of teaching after my credential program, the lady retired, so she left everything for me. Uh-huh. And I carried her around even though I moved classrooms and before the summer started this year, I literally threw out files upon files from her that I didn't need like oh, wow. a master copy of how to make 
like an old school handwritten uh, grade book. Like, I don't need that anymore. I know. Well, that's one thing I'm struggling with right now is all the technology that I'm used to using is definitely not set up in my room. And I'm having those fears of like, what if it's not ready on the first day? And what am I going to do? And then I think like, what did the old school teachers do? Like, they must have been just amazing at certain things. Yeah. Like writing on the board, that's not my skill set. I had a I didn't have to. I chose to do it for the first time the other day. It took me a while, but it looks really pretty. I used this really epic maroon-colored marker, so it looks really on point. And I left it for when I get back on Monday because I'm really proud of my writing. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, The best thing that happened to me this week, actually, is that a former student, so after the students graduate, if I really like them, I will add them on Facebook when they're adults. I wait a few years and leave them in my friendship inbox and then confirm two years later (laughs) yeah purgatory facebook purgatory the best thing that happened to me was one of my former students like you know thanking me for or saying she was glad that she had me when i was at school and um she called me a feminist icon and i was like are you kidding me i'm going to print this out frame it and put it on my wall so that every day i feel terrible i just look at the words feminist icon (laughs) it's beautiful i had about a week and a half ago i don't know if i told you this um one i didn't know that i had google plus on my phone Hmm. or that i could get messages but a student from my first year of teaching so this kid's probably like 23 now um he was a senior. He sent me an apology message. Wow. Yeah. What's that like? It was, I was like, did he make a mistake? He was like, I'm sorry for being mean to you. And I didn't really remember that he was ever mean. I really liked him actually a lot. So it was kind of yeah. surprising. You know, you always hear from older teachers that that will happen, that like students will come back and say like, I'm sorry that I was such an ass in your class or whatever. And you're like, the kind of reflection that goes into that, like thinking back on what you did and then apologizing to your teacher is like, it's pretty awesome when that happens. This yeah. has yet to happen to me, but I'm looking forward to the day when it might possibly happen. It will. Apparently <laughs> on Google Plus. Oh. A dying forum for sending messages. Oh, <laughs> RIP Google Plus. Not yeah. quite yet, but preemptively. Soon. So a week or so ago, Kelly sent me this article on Pinterest, which is called Eight Things to Have at Your Teacher Desk. It seems to be from this lady's blog called Maneuvering the Middle. She's a middle teacher. And uh, it's a really awesome list, at least for lady teachers. I guess men, if you have long hair, number one would apply to you too, which is a hair tie. Two is Advil. Three, plastic utensils. Agreed on that one. I've come to your rooms like scavenging for plastic forks many a day. Yes. Uh, Four, I don't wear contacts, but contact solution. Mm -hmm. Five, um, I think it's alluding to like cough drops and uh, those little powder things you put in drinks. Emergency. Oh, like medicine, basically. But just in case you get sick. Mm -hmm. Number six is Clorox wipes, which 100% I have in my classroom because kids are gross. Um, (laughs) They don't mean to be, though. They're just germ mongers. (laughs) Yeah. Number seven is an extra phone charger, which I also have in my desk. Yes. Uh, But it's nice because I have an Android and all the kids have iPhones. So whenever they ask for one, I'm like, sorry, you can't use mine. Ooh, that's good. You should pretend. Uh, and then number eight is an eyeglass repair kit, which 
I don't really, I think that's more of like a middle elementary school thing because she alludes to the fact that you need Perhaps, to fix students' yeah. glasses. But no one's ever come up to me and asked me to fix their glasses. No, I'm. it's much more common for me to actually find out that a kid wears glasses like halfway through the year and then be like, why haven't you been wearing them? And I'm sure it's because <laughs> they don't want to wear them because they think they look like a dweeb. But really, of all the time periods to have to wear glasses, at least now it's like cool to be like nerd chic, right? Yeah. I mean, I wear glasses when I teach Otherwise, it's hard for me to read things. I can't wait till I need glasses so that I look smarter. <laughs> but, you know, we then can I get you to... some, some uh, what is it called, non-prescription frames? I could, so that I could look like Liz Lemon, my hero. Yeah, you could uh, go shop at Urban Outfitters like you're 12. Ooh. Pick them up. I'm sure they have them there. Hmm. So what it, we made our own little list. Yeah. So what's your number one? Uh, so I'm a big believer in in Pepto. I like that if I ever think I feel sick. But recently I thought maybe I would get heavy metal poisoning if I started drinking it all the time. Ooh. So instead, I have these things called gingins, which are candy. They're amazing. They make a whole variety of, like, different ginger-flavored things from hard candies to, like, chews and ginger everything. Yeah. So I have Pepto and gingins. And I also, in my classroom, have a Brita filter. It took me a while to figure out that I did not need to bring, like, those giant two-gallon, I don't know, you know the ones Things that have the water. spout on it? Oh, okay. Yeah, I was carrying those for years oh. before I thought about the Brita filter. Oh, so you just jammed through your list. So one is Gingins, two oh, is yeah. Pepto, and three is the Brita filter. Yes. Nice. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny that your um, number one outweighs your number two and the reason for the pepto is that you're a little bit of a hypochondriac but then the reason why you stopped having the number two is because you're a little bit of a hypochondriac about the thing you're taking (laughs) i mean i thought that like there it doesn't say like you shouldn't take every day on the bottle but i mean it can't really be good for you to do that all the time also because like fundamentally nothing's wrong with me right well, I mean, <laughs> we'll see. some things are to wrong, be determined. Um, nothing really. <laughs> my number one. Well, I didn't really rank these in order. I just made a list. But I like to have trail mix. Um, good snack that doesn't go bad in your classroom. And also sometimes if I'm feeling nice, I'll give it to kids that look famished. <laughs> and they are immediately happy, especially if it's the Trader Joe's um, one with like lots of chocolate in it. Yeah. So I recently, mainly because my husband eats all my snacks at home. I hide my snacks in my classroom. Don't put that on the internet. He's, he's going to know your hiding spot. I'll know if he actually listens now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so they make individual bags of trail mix of the almond, cashew, and like chocolate chunk one that I buy. Ooh. So that's in my classroom. That's good. Okay, my number two is Band-Aids with cartoons on them. Aww. I like to have a really embarrassing Band-Aid so that the kids, when the kids ask for them, I can make them laugh about whatever injury they have. Like, I'll have, like, rainbows or, like, Pac-Man. And they're, like, I think at first they're, like, do you think I'm in sixth grade? And I'm, like, I don't care. Like, embrace it. Move on. That's awesome. I have, like, really hardcore Band-Aids. Uh, the, you know those uh, fabric strip ones? Ooh, yeah. I get a lot of bad blisters from my terrible oh. shoe choices. Me too. And so those are really good for blisters. But then the kids take them because, inevitably, they ask if I have Band-Aids and I have to give up my really beautiful ones. But I think... If I have a silly box for them and a serious box for me, yeah, that might be the way to go. Right. Like, you need to differentiate, like, is this a serious injury or is this a silly injury? Yeah. 
My number three is access to someone with medication oh, smiling me. face, which is you. <laughs> Hence the reason for a teacher bestie, because, you know, you're never going to have like all the things you need when you get sick in your room. But if you have access to a hypochondriac, you might have all the things that you need. The best is when a TA comes in or used to come in and ask, <laughs> do you have Advil? <laughs> And that you would know it was for me. Yeah. Yeah. Or like I would just tend my tea and I'd say, go in. I need you to ask her for saltines, some Advil and some water from that Brita filter. (laughs) And then they would kind of look at me like if they didn't know you yet, like is she going to be mad at me because I'm coming in her classroom? I'm like, just say your link to me and it won't be a problem. (laughs) Definitely not. It's really funny how some teachers are afraid to walk in. This week I'm I'm friends with a counselor at school and she doesn't have a mini fridge. So she put her creamer. (laughs) For coffee oh. in my fridge no nope, yeah. no problem figured she would just walk in when she needed it yeah nope did not come in until passing period she waited how oh, how nice i mean it is considerate because sometimes you're just in that mood where you're like who are you why are you coming in my room but, but if i know you it's yeah, not a big deal and big i'll just deal. completely ignore you yeah oh side note on the mini fridge um i inherited a mini fridge oh. from the teacher that was in my previous room who abandoned it so sometimes you do get good things that are oh, that's awesome i have a fridge i yeah. love it don't put things in the freezer i did that once and left it there for a while those freezers are not good no no they are not that went moldy it was sad Ooh, that that is sad times i'm not gonna do that i'm just gonna have it for things that i used to put in your fridge Maybe if you have a better idea of some things that we should keep in our desks, we're open to hearing them. Or in our new fridges oh, that yeah. we have acquired. I have almond milk in my fridge. Smart. That's it. Okay. Okay. Moving on. I was reading in the New York Times the other day that there is now a teacher shortage Um nationwide and that districts nationwide are scrambling to hire teachers um most of the article which was written by matoko rich on august 9th uh 2015 said that during the recession um and subsequently after the recession prospective teachers became wary of accumulating debt or training for jobs that might not exist. As the economy has recovered, college graduates have more employment options with better pay and a more glamorous image, like in the rebounding technology sector. It goes on to quote some interesting statistics like, um, here in California, the number of people entering the teacher prep programs has dropped by more than 55% from 2008 to 2012, and this is according to the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing. Also, there's a national drop by 30%. Um, Teach for America is also seeing uh, a problem with recruitment nationwide. And it's basically leading districts to scramble and um, issue internship credentials to people that are currently in a credentialing program but who have yet to finish. It says that California, the Department of Ed, has issued fewer than 15,000 new teacher credentials in this upcoming academic year. Which is kind of crazy considering how many openings there are. I think we should also note that the article says that most of the available positions are in STEM fields, so math and science, and then also special ed has a lot of teacher shortages. Right. It also goes on to talk about, it reflects back on what it was like six or seven years ago when you and I were coming into the field and at that time it was 
very challenging to find a job because it was impacted. There were more credentials than jobs. They were issuing layoffs. And I remember feeling like every interview I went into, I had to really, really compete. True. Uh, My first job was in an alternative education setting because I couldn't get just a regular history job. I had to, that year, get an additional credential to be able to teach English, Mm -hmm. which... And I worked at a charter school, not necessarily because I couldn't um, find a a traditional job, but just like it definitely felt like I was going to accept whatever was offered to me at that time. And many of the people that graduated in my class were shocked when you did find a job. Yeah, uh, there were definitely a lot of people who I graduated with who uh, I know still to this day do not have teacher jobs. They went back to their career that they had before or found something else to do yeah which is really sad to me because yeah it's a lot of they were awesome um I found something interesting about this article and then we also all week long I just once I became aware of it I uh just kept hearing about it within the local districts that we're aware of um and that more districts are actually recruiting in the manner that a company might do where they're um, saying, oh, well, we have these benefits, we give you health care, which is actually, shockingly, not something that a lot of districts offer anymore. Yeah, I mean, that used to be the major incentive to be a teacher is that you had these awesome health care policies, and now it's not necessarily not. so. This yeah. article from the San Jose Mercury News, which uh, came out. Oh, uh, same day. Bay Area schools in a hiring frenzy just day before students returned to class. Uh, it says that uh, San Jose Unified highlights its employee benefits like health like a health package worth $15,000 including no premium for single employees. So I guess that's targeted 100% at young teachers who are just coming into the f- profession who don't have a spouse or kids and Yeah, and like it's definitely legit yeah. when you say that it's going to be worth that much cuz when I accepted a new position without health care and I factored in like how much it would have been if my spouse hadn't had one it would have been over $15,000 a year that I would have been paying out of pocket so it's definitely a benefit um and it's it's definitely a, a I mean I guess it's a nicer change to see people actively recruiting but fundamentally the question is how do you get people who are highly qualified and have the ability to be teachers to take on a job that's seen as not potentially the most glamorous thing and definitely doesn't have a pay that's that matches the amount of work that you put into it. Yeah. I mean, I would also say that something, as someone who has is newly accepting a position after many years working at another district, I would say that I w- something I'd like to see all HR departments in school districts begin to do is... Um, I'd like to see someone in your interview process from human resources. Um, I'd also like to see somebody, um, when you're offered a position, many teachers are offered a position and they're offered it, they're told the classes, they might be told the classes they're going to teach, they might be told some of the circumstances, but it's usually very vague and you kind of have to take a leap of faith and the benefits and resources that come with that job are almost always very vague. Um, It's rare that you know if you're going to be supplied with a computer. It's rare if you know um, what the benefits like outside of your pay are going to be. And that makes it really difficult for someone to accept a job even when they have a credential, let alone someone who is... True. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing to say this, but I don't know how much money I make a year. 
Like, <laughs> is that because it's more depressing to look? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I mean, compared to other parts of this country, I would say that we're both very lucky that we live in the Bay Area. Granted, the amount of money that we make in the Bay Area is not necessarily, yeah, compared to cost of living, is not necessarily enough. No, it's not if comparable. If we weren't, uh, if we didn't have a significant other, I think both of us would really be struggling. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the times when I'm when I'm upset about these things, it's not necessarily for my own situation, but it's because I think how are single people who are taking these positions you know dealing with this like absolutely so and i think a lot of times these districts particularly where we live are relying on the fact that the person they're hiring is getting health care from their spouse or does have disposable income and then you know that goes on a whole nother um rant about who has access to this profession true and i mean a few weeks ago i was telling you that uh i went to teacher school in California, but before that I started a program in New Jersey. Um, And one of the first classes I took, we were definitely reading about who joins the profession. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly middle... uh, Middle income. Middle income white women. Like Mm -hmm. people who have had really positive education experiences themselves and are looking to pay that forward. Mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily looking to get into the impacted areas like... I enjoy teaching in my suburban setting. Mm-hmm. Could I probably teach in a more urban setting? Yes. Would it be much more challenging? Of course. Yeah. Would the retention rate be a statistic? Probably I maybe would have left after five years because I wouldn't have felt supported. Right. But we don't know. That's true. Yeah. Well, and to say comment on what you just said about who enters the profession – I think it would be easy to infer about that, you know, segment of the population that they also oftentimes are, you know, married to another person that benefits them or has a larger income, which is not fair to all the single people out there who are trying to get into this position. So a final note about this New York Times article. Uh, One of the teachers they interviewed, uh, her name is Ashley Pepin, and um, she was in a teacher credential program, and she declined several opportunities to become an intern teacher, saying that that it was more important to stay in her position as a student and learn how to be a teacher rather than just jumping in and burning out really quickly, mm-hmm. which I think there's a lot of validity to do that. Yeah. Something that is interesting in my mind, and I know we went to different schools for our teacher programs, like teacher school should be cheaper if they want yeah. to recruit more people. Mm-hmm. and have people that aren't going to be so focused on paying off their debt from school quickly, Yeah, then there needs to be a fundamental change in how teacher recruitment happens. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely aware of that when I entered into a state school because I knew um, what I could afford to pay. I didn't want to take on any loans. I was lucky enough to be able to afford the tuition at the time. But I have friends who went to Stanford credential programs, and they have... I went to a, a private school, of debt. <laughs> but I was fortunate enough to apply for scholarships and actually get them. Yeah. And also at the time, it was I was moving from a different state, and it was my, hey, I'm going to apply to this school and see what happens. And then I yeah. got in, and it was awesome. But at the same time, it would definitely be a very interesting tactic to see education operating like the private sector. Right. Well, and also if we... It just the comment that our profession is not glamorous, like absolutely that's true. It's not glamorous, but um, I, I would also argue that if they want to make it seem 
I, I would say if, it, if people would just saw it as more of a respectable academic um, profession as it should be and not just like oh, you became a teacher because you want summers off or all the other, like, you know, stereotypes, then young professionals maybe would be more likely to go into that and would be coming from these top universities that if they felt like they could invest their money in it and get see a return, then maybe they would. True. And, I mean, the New York Times article definitely references how teachers are treated in other countries, which I don't think we necessarily have time to delve into, but right. the answer is better than the United States. <laughs> they pay more and probably have better working conditions. Very true. And know, let's be positive. Yes. Yeah. We're looking to see a lot of exciting change. Yeah. And you know what? The other thing is if you're a superstar in a credential program right now, you are going to get a job and that is awesome. Yeah. Good luck to you. Okay, so I was reading an article in The Economist on their books, arts, and culture blog called Prospero, and it was arguing, um, it was kind of using Twitter as the hook that um, teaching students to write with brevity and to edit their work down is a really important um, skill. And the writer goes on to suggest that teachers should try the following trick. Assign students a paper of 10 pages and then tell them that the real assignment is to trim it back to five in class with the clock ticking. Um, and that they believe that this, this um, skill will outlast them far more than any symbolism lesson or um, Tolstoy reading, they say. But... Um, Essentially, the point being that learning how to revise, edit, cut your work, and write concisely is very important. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the author definitely is uh, – he takes some time to say that he doesn't really understand why teachers require there to be a specific minimum page requirement. Mm -hmm. I would say that perhaps this person hasn't necessarily taught freshmen in high school who will write one sentence when you need to write five. Uh, for example, my first assignment on the first day of school was – write a paragraph telling me about yourself and your family mm -hmm. and kids wrote two sentences and I couldn't even like like that's all you have to say about yourself two sentences yeah. um, and so well yes that's a good job keeping it short sometimes it does need to be a little longer however uh, there's lots of filler words that don't need to be there and they take time to go look in the thesaurus for words that are not necessarily synonyms for what they're trying to say. And so I really do like this idea of brevity, especially for those upper level students that are just trying to show you how smart they are by using fancy words. Yeah, like I always tell them it sounds like a thesaurus threw up on their paper, um, but with a little bit nicer than that. But um, <laughs> they get it once I say it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to your point about this person doesn't know what it's like to teach a kid who probably needs to be told how long to write. I mean, the reality is, is that a lot of our students are coming from an academic world in which they have been told how long everything needs to be. And there's a fear there when they're not told how long everything needs to be. Um, and they also sometimes, I guess maybe we do sometimes focus on the exercise of you need to write more. You need to practice writing more. Um, but I would agree with him that a lesson in, in editing, revising, cutting things down is important. Um, something I've done in my classroom, which is really beneficial, um, I would say across a lot of levels. I've done it with freshmen. I've done it with AP juniors. Um, if you have the access to technology is have them come in 
after they've already worked on a lot of writing with you and they're not afraid, but have them sit down at the computer with a blank page and tell them how much time they have. Usually I give them a class period of about 60 minutes to write an in-class essay, meaning it wouldn't probably be more than five or six paragraphs. Okay. Um, I have them do it right there and then, and I tell them that it's due at the end of the period. Um, and then after that, the next day, I have them switch, like I have them send it through Google Docs, share it with the partner, yeah. and then the partner revises it or cuts some, cuts a whole paragraph out, then gives it back. Just a process of revision that I think is pretty good for them. Um, but I think the, the method of like telling them to get everything out on the page, then going back and telling them to cut is always a good trick. Yeah, I like that too. In high school, I struggled with definitely figuring out what to write. And so I definitely word vomited. And then my sister was really awesome and is an amazing editor and then always found gold in whatever crap I had written. Yeah. Uh, So it's nice if you have a copy editor of your own. I know, I'm married to one. (laughs) But it's definitely a skill that is developed over time, and I think this guy raises a really valid point. I also think with the generation of students that we're teaching, they've been raised around constant distractions that they almost can't avoid unless they are more mature than teenagers. And um, so when they are writing their their papers, um, they are checking Facebook, they are getting pinged from their friends, they are getting text messages, they are getting constant disruptions, and there is definitely a lack of continuity in their work. And sadly, sometimes their in-class essays are better than their out-of-class work. Oh, that is really sad. It is really sad. But um, if they uh, bring in something like that, that this exercise of then going back and revising it could also, in addition to teaching them how to write um, more concisely, could also just fix all of the bad stuff they did when they were paying more attention to, um, you know, the GIF on their screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So shifting to something a little more serious than uh, the kinds of things we keep on our desk. Um, This American Life this week did an episode um, called, it was number 562, The Problem We All Live With. And they actually did, it's a two-parter, so two weeks, two parts. We listened to the first part. Nicole Hannah-Jones is an investigative reporter these days at the New York Times. We've had her here on This American Life before, too. But her first real reporting job was back in 2003. She was reporting on the schools in Durham, North Carolina. And like most places, there were good schools and there were bad schools. And at the time, it was the heyday of No Child Left Behind. Durham was working really hard to improve the bad schools. And I would go to schools, and they would just always be trying these new things that actually sounded like they might work. Um, they would do things like, well, put a great magnet program here, or um, we are going to um, really focus on literacy. We're going to start an early college high school, which kids would earn college credit in high school. Um, we're going to improve teacher quality. We're going to replace the principal, more testing. They're always talking really about the same things. I mean, you could you could take these conversations and go from district to district to district, and you will always hear the same things. What you noticed was that it never worked. I mean, like, never. The bad schools never caught up to the good schools. And the bad schools were mostly black and Latino. The good schools, mostly white. 
And sure, there might be a principal here or a charter school there who might do a good job improving student scores, but even there, they were just improving their student scores. The minority kids in their programs were still not performing on par with white kids. They hadn't closed the achievement gap between black kids and white kids. And my question is, all of these different ways that we say we're going to address this issue aren't working. So what actually works? And that's what I really began to look at. And I find this one thing that really worked, that cut the achievement gap between black and white students by half. By half? By half. But it's the one thing that we're not really talking about and that very few places are doing anymore. That thing that is so effective but never discussed, that's not one of the tools that educators reach for normally? Can you guess? Integration. The reporter spends a lot of time going over um, kind of the history of of desegregation from Brown v. Board. She talks a little bit about, like, how from the time of Brown v. Board to, like, around 1988 that the achievement gap was actually um, closing pretty quickly. And um, then around 1988 was when we, as a nation, started becoming more and more segregated and the achievement gap began to widen once again. So we started going kind of backwards. Um, the story mostly starts and covers a mother-daughter, Nidra and Maria Martin, mm-hmm. and um, how they're in, or Maria is a student in the school district, Normandy, in Missouri, and basically how they were on probation in the school district for 15 years, <laughs> and they so, were like, not... the entire length of a child's, like, schooling. Yeah, three... Three graduating classes graduated from a school that was not meeting the appropriate level mm-hmm. or of education in that state, which is fundamentally very depressing. Mm-hmm. And um, one, how is it possible that that was happening? And two, why didn't anyone intervene sooner is beyond my scope of comprehension. Um, yeah, she cites a bunch of things before she really gets into that story that I think are important. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Um, she talks about how um, that busing, which was the primary way of um, integrating schools, while it was very hard for children because they have to get up early, they're not part of the community that they're going to school in and all of that, busing was actually working when you look at like statistics and when you look at like she was a product of busing and now – you know, she's a successful reporter on This American Life. And um, she talked about how, um, you know, one in two black children today, not back then, today, one in two black children live um, or attend a school that has basically lost its accreditation, while only one in 25 white children um, attend a similar, similarly low-performing school. Um, and basically, Ira Glass just asked her, like, why does it work? And she just said, like, it's not that all of a sudden you put black children in a school with white kids and they, like, the light bulb comes on, which is kind of obvious. Like, yeah. it's sad that she had to say that. But 
Um, she just says, like, when you integrate the schools, those children who would have otherwise not had access to the kinds of things that white children get, better access to classes, better teachers, better facilities, more money interjected from the community, all of those things, now those children that are being bused in also have access to those things. And just the simple access often results in a better education. True, and overall just raising the bar and the rigor of everything. The mother and the daughter who once the child, once the school that the daughter attended lost the the accreditation, they had the opportunity to be bused to a school that was 30 minutes away. But it was really interesting because they were, uh, this school district, Normandy, is right next to one of the best districts in Missouri. But in order to get people not to be bused out of the district, they picked a school district that was 30 miles away on the highway, so it would be a lot of commuting time. To discourage it. Yeah. And even with that discouragement, a thousand kids from their district chose to be bussed out. True. And uh, the really crummy thing for the Normandy district is they had to foot the bill for all of that, which they deserve to do that because they're not providing an education for those kids. Exactly. Um, the reporter talks about how, like, why is it that this happens? She talks about how teachers in schools that are segregated, you know, those children that are living in poverty in particular are coming with a host of other problems that enter our classrooms and um, that the the teachers, like my comment on that was like the teachers are really overwhelmed when every single one of their uh, their students is high needs and even if they have the best of intentions, they're probably not going to be able to meet the needs of all of those kids and so there's another benefit of integration. Very true. Um, it's interesting, and I don't know if you're skipping, saving this for later. Mm-hmm. Uh, before the busing actually stopped, the district they were going to is called Frederick Howe, also obviously in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you would like to hear some really astounding racist remarks, you should listen to that segment of the show. Because the parents, the parents of the white children were just disgusting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, I, I, they said a lot of really coded stuff that was like... Um, what's go- are we going to have metal detectors in our school now like what's going to happen when the drug sniffing dogs come in which is just a lot of like coded stuff for we think that these poor black children are violent we think that they are um, gonna cause trouble and it was like and when, uh, when those responses weren't really met with good, yeah. like they were ignored they went to well what happens when our school district stops or starts to drop in points and then we're not seen as the same like competitive district we once were what does that mean for our children going to college yeah the biggest takeaway I thought from this article at least from my perspective as like a pretty privileged white person is um, a lot of the language that you heard from those parents was them saying um, if those children come to our school we will move we will take our kids to another school we will pay for private school but the underlying thing there was look at all of the options that you have those kids that those black kids that are going to that school in Normandy, they, they don't, don't have, have that. that option, and they they wanted to go to that school so that they could escape the kind of failing school that they've been stuck with. And I feel um, like the one question that they actually had merit to ask, no one did, which is, how are we going to deal with one thousand more new students? Are we going to have more teachers because mm-hmm. class sizes will be bigger? Are we going to maintain the size of our classes? But no, no one asked that. Yeah, another thing that um, I think, at least in part one, I don't think was addressed was, um, 
you know, busing, it seems like her focus was a lot on busing, which is oftentimes the easiest solution for them. But I think if we had more low-income housing mixed in with middle-income housing, um, you know, we would also see some uh, more integrated schoolings, which is something that a lot of um, middle-class privileged people don't want. So um, something between the East Coast and this coast is that growing up there wasn't a lot of integrating integrated housing. I mm-hmm. grew up in a suburb of New York City. I don't think there are any apartments in my town until recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I moved to California, there's so much integrated housing. It's, it's much different and much nicer, mm-hmm. I would say. Even that, though, it is still pretty segregated by um, uh, class and, you know, as a result, race. I think um, I live in a er- more urban community now than I used to before. And, um, you know, I live in a house, but there are multifamily housing around me and definitely people of varying incomes and races. And I notice a lot of coded language that people use for me and that they <laughs> say to me that where it's like, oh, it'll be great when like essentially alluding to like when your neighborhood gentrifies more will be like, it'll be great when like that apartment is not there anymore. And it's like one of those things that you kind of think, oh, isn't it sad that you're saying that? Because basically what you're saying is, won't it be nice when you chase those people out who can't afford to live in a house? Which is really funny because I think I might be oblivious. I don't even know. Like, I don't like I was just about to ask you live near an apartment building. Yeah. No, I mean, there's one right across the street. And the first thing that my realtor said to me when we were thinking about buying the house was, you know, you have to consider there's multifamily housing across the street, which will deter people from buying this house, which is just I mean, it's a coded way of saying like people are afraid of living near people who are poorer than them. And that basically goes back to why our our schools are so segregated. Yeah. And uh, we were talking before we started recording this about how even schools that are more integrated within those schools, we see patterns of self-segregation, which I think is even more frustrating because if you put a, a child, a younger child in their own environment, they're for the most part race blind. It's Well, they're mimicking the environment they see. So it's the things that adults do around them that are causing them to have these very frustrating behaviors. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I look like this. I should take an AP class. I don't look like this. I should take whatever. Yes. As levels of poverty go up in this country, like if we want our schools to sort of reflect our nation as a whole, like our school communities to reflect that, then we are probably going to need to become more comfortable with students who are struggling and poor in our schools or we need to address that in another way yeah and i mean right now obviously uh school policies are done on a state-by-state level but definitely something to think about which i think gets a lot of backlash because it's a state right not a federal right is changing changing how that school funding happens and making sure that schools are fundamentally more integrated wouldn't you want your child or students to have the most well-rounded education and I think that we both really are are advocates of not just a top-down learning environment but the fact that you can learn from all your friends so if everyone in the room looks the same as you and acts the same as you what can you actually learn from those people mm-hmm. I mean I would also say that um, at least from my perspective I think the 
the sad thing is that a lot of parent, a lot of white parents are, even when they fundamentally believe in integration and equality, they have a hard time um, putting their child in a failing school and making their child the experiment. True. And I think that right there is the fundamental difference between middle-class white kids and poor black kids is the middle-class white kids parents have the privilege of making that decision and the poor black kids are stuck with the school that they got yeah i mean on the plus side it did end on a more positive note didn't it uh can you remind me of what that was i'm trying to remember myself so maybe positive was a strong way to phrase that uh basically at the graduation ceremony the governor of the state State apologized to the students of Normandy for their educational experience mm-hmm. and that it wasn't up to par with the rest of the state, mm-hmm. which, uh, when do public officials ever actually apologize? Yeah, right. And so I guess I'm very curious to see what part two of this brings. Me too. Um, I would also really like to hear from, like, some of our friends who are teachers and people of color who, like, have an opinion or have had more experience with this especially since we're just a couple of white ladies. Yeah. I'd like to hear, like, another perspective. So um, I would recommend listening to the, the two-parter on This American Life. Um, we'll what was the episode the of link. Oh, yeah, The Problems We All Live With. 562. 562 and 563. I would recommend really, like, anybody, parents, teachers, listen to it. Um, I mean, it's just a really good piece of radio in addition to being informative. So True. so that's the end of our show um i really enjoyed recording with you today at my house not your house and my dog you got to sit on my lap the whole time and slept what are you looking forward to this week i am looking forward to knowing everyone's names because i feel like i've got like 90 percent mastery right now also getting my teacher stamina back and not like conking out at nine every night training your bladder and things like that yeah uh, this week I'm going to finish setting up my new classroom. I'm going to lots of professional development and meeting my new colleagues. Awesome. All very overwhelming stuff. But fun. When is your first official day with children? Uh, over a week away. So when we, the next time you see us, I will be in the same position that you are. I will have taught the kids for a week. Excellent. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Okay, so you can find us on teacherbestiespodcast.tumblr.com. You can also find us on SoundCloud as Teacher Besties, or you can find us on iTunes if you search for our podcast title, Teacher Besties. Also, if you like us, please give us a rating and um, review us. That's how other teachers who don't know us or who are not our mothers find us. Yes. Shout out to moms. And thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.